Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Proverbs, chapter 17, verses 19 through 22. One who loves transgression loves strife. One who builds a high threshold invites broken bones. The crooked of mind do not prosper, and the perverse of tongue fall into calamity. The one who begets a fool gets trouble. The parent of a fool has no joy. A cheerful heart is a good medicine, but a downcast spirit dries up the bones. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Angela, thank you for reading our lesson this morning, and greetings to all of you. It's wonderful to be in worship today. Uh, There's just the tiniest little hint of fall in the air, and that would be a relief uh, for the heat that we've uh, had this summer. It's been a long, hot summer, and we look forward to the cool breeze that is coming in about three months, I think, uh, that will be here. Uh, What a joy it is to have Carolyn Hancock, Dr. Hancock, with us. And I started to say her sister, but it's actually her daughter, Georgie, who's with us. Uh, It's a great joy to see you all. We look forward uh, to this time every year when you're here, and we look forward to Thursday night. Many of you are a part of that team and we're grateful to you, and many of you sponsor students. I think nearly 400, if I'm not mistaken, students and teachers and administrators. And so this is really one of the key strategic missions of Brentwood Church, and the relationships, uh, the partnership that we have with you all means a great deal to us. And it's always good to see you on this side of the pond and on the other as well. And so uh, we welcome you. Thank you to the Joy Sound for the way that you kicked us off today. That was the only kickoff that I enjoyed this weekend, actually, and it was a wonderful one. So thank you, Patsy, and to all of our musicians. It's always great to be with the youth choir as well. Um, Hugh, thank you for your work, and thank you for your leadership over the years and what that has meant to the kingdom and to this church and to our dear friends uh, in Howick, South Africa. Well, if you're visiting with us today, uh, we're on the back nine of this series that we're calling Wise Up. It's a series having to do with the book of Proverbs, part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament canon. And there are three, as you know, books that are a part of the wisdom literature, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. And we'll be studying Ecclesiastes in the new year, January, February, 2020. And then we'll be looking at Job uh, during the Lenten season in 2020. But for now, uh, we've been thinking together that, that we live in this context that we call the age of information, or what really we call the age of information overload where at any given moment we have massive amounts of data at our fingertips on our iPhones, on our iPads, iPods, and yet why is it that in spite of all that information that we seem to have a deficiency of wisdom? The word wisdom, as we've talked about, is the Hebrew word hakma, which literally means prudence or discretion. Boy, we could use a dose of discretion, hmm? In this age, skill, discernment, understanding. And so in these last six weeks to date, we have noted in the book of Proverbs the correlation between wisdom and reverence. Wisdom begins with reverence for God, 
And we've talked about the fact that foolishness begins with irreverence towards God. And irreverence towards the Creator invariably leads to irreverence towards the creation and also ridicule of our neighbor. It's funny how that works. We've talked about the connection between wisdom and trust. Put all your weight on God, lean not on your own perspective, trust in the Lord. We've talked about the connection between wisdom and work, that work is not a curse, it's a blessing of God, part of the design of creation. You have hands, we have a work ethic. We've talked about wisdom and discipline or self-control. We've talked about the connection between wisdom and speech, that in reality in this culture, the litmus test for wisdom is the way that you talk to each other and about each other. And then last week we talked about the connection between wisdom and humility. And I, th- I think I want to share something with you. I talked about in the context of humility that someone asked me one day, if Brentwood United Methodist Church were an animal, what would it be? And I said, a blue tick poodle, thinking that I was creating a species And then someone sent me a picture this week. There is such a thing. I think it's called a canoodle. It's part coon dog. It's a hunting dog. And and it's part poodle. And I said that because Brentwood has a touch of class. That's the poodle part. But it runs every which way all the time. And, and, And so... If you find one of those or you know where I can get one, I want to get one, and I'm, I'm torn between two names. I'm either going to name it Brent or Woody. I like both names, but I'm thinking about that. At any rate, enough of that. I want to talk with you for a few minutes today about the connection between wisdom and humor. I dare say you've never heard a sermon about humor, maybe. The connection between wisdom and joy. One of the concerns that I have about the culture in which we're living is that we have this increasing inability to be able to laugh at ourselves. I I don't know what it's about, really, but it's such a shame because there's so much material for most of us, and it's a waste. And I've decided, and this is clergy, mostly, that sometimes we take ourselves way too seriously, way too seriously. G.K. Chesterton once said, angels can fly because they take themselves lightly, (laughs) while devils and demons fall from grace because of the heaviness of their own pride, of their own envy and their greed. So much of humor in the 21st century, you don't even hear it much from the pulpit, unfortunately, because so much of it has been replaced in our time with snark. You know that word? Snarky. It means a mocking irreverence. It's past being sarcastic. It's being cynical about life and about God. And sometimes I think it just needs to be said, we need to chill. Sometimes we need to lighten up and take ourselves a little less seriously. 
I love Irma Bombeck. I know I'm dating myself when I say that, the Jewish mother, grandmother, who said, when humor goes, there goes the civilization. We can't laugh at ourselves. And I think this is the point of Proverbs 17, verse 22. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Boy, is that ever true. Eugene Peterson, who's written this wonderful paraphrase of the scripture called The Message, says it like this. A cheerful disposition is actually good for your health. Gloom and doom leave you bone-tired. Now, there are other verses in Proverbs that essentially basically say the same thing. Let me give you a few. Chapter 12, verse 25 says, anxiety weighs down the human heart, but a good word cheers you up. Chapter 15, verse 13, a glad heart makes a cheerful countenance face, but heartache can crush the spirit. Proverbs 15, 15, all the days of the oppressed are hard, but the cheerful heart has a continual feast. Oh, I like that. Cheerful. The word cheerful in the Hebrew is ashar. You know what it means? It means jovial. It means playful. It means humorous. Jerry Seinfeld is a name that all of us would recognize. The Jewish comedian who said, the greatest Jewish tradition is to laugh The cornerstone of Jewish survival, he said, has always been to find the humor in life and in myself. Or as one said, humor is the affectionate communication of wisdom. Now, I don't know if you're aware of it, but there's a lot of humor in Proverbs, and I'm risking myself to share some of it with you. There's a lot of humor in Proverbs, and I'll give you a taste. Proverbs eleven twenty two. check this out. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Now, I didn't say it. Don't look at me like that. It's in the Bible. Proverbs 27, 14, if a man loudly blesses his neighbor too early in the morning, it'll be taken as a curse. Boy, is that ever true? For those of you who think of A.M. as aggravating and mean, you would say an amen to that. Love this one. Proverbs 27, 15, a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. I'm going to preach on that text on the 12th of never. (laughs) I suppose Solomon wrote that. Uh, one day after a little heated argument with one of his 700 wives. I mean, talk about a lack of wisdom. (laughs) Amen? Here's my favorite, Proverbs 22, verse 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the streets which essentially means when you don't really want to go to work, any excuse will do. Well, everybody needs a sense of humor. Everybody needs to laugh. There's a lot of humor in the Bible. You recognize that? You see it in Genesis, in the story of Isaac. You remember the baby Isaac? You remember his birth was foretold 
to his aging parents, Abraham and Sarah, in the twilight of their lives. In fact, the scripture says in their 90s, Abraham and Sarah lived at a place called the Oaks of Mamre. It even sounds like assisted living. <laughs> and the birth is foretold that you're going to bear a child in your, own, in your old age. And Sarah just belly laughed and then became pregnant. And she, amen. <laughs> There's a word. Feel a little peer pressure from up on the screen. <laughs> Until the day she gave birth and they started thinking names and they named him Isaac. It means one who laughs. The whole thing seemed like a joke, but it was no laughing matter. It helps to laugh. I feel like crying a lot and sometimes you just have to laugh to keep from crying. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Hebrew humor, Jewish humor is very different. It is very unique. It's not like American humor. It's not slapstick. It's not riddles or so much joke telling. Hebrew humor has four distinctive characteristics. The first is it's usually substantive. Somebody's trying to make a point it's real-life stuff based on real-life stuff. Secondly, it's usually anti-authoritarian. In other words, it's a way to expose, in a humorous way, hypocrisy and to kick pomposity in the pants. Thirdly, it usually has a critical edge to it that when you hear it creates a little discomfort and you kind of <laughs> have a weak laugh when you hear it. And fourthly, it pokes fun at everybody. It's an equal opportunity offender, and so nobody, no thing, gets off the hook. Everybody can be made fun of in Hebrew humor. Some of you went with Sherry and I back in, uh, what was it, February to Israel, and we had two wonderful guides. One was a Palestinian Christian, one was an Orthodox Jew. On the bus with the Orthodox Jew, whose name was Ishai, our Jewish guide, we, he began telling jokes. Some of you remember this. And I was telling jokes about preachers and Christians, and he was telling jokes about Jews, and everybody was having a big laugh. And he told me this one. There was once a Jewish grandfather who took his grandkids to the beach, to the shore, and they were playing in the sand when all of a sudden this massive wave came and pulled the smallest little boy out into the water. And the grandfather, of course, panicked. And he began to look to God. He began to pray and say, oh, God, please bring my boy back. Please save his life. Let him live. And then another big wave comes in and brings the little boy right back to the grandfather's feet. He picks him up, kisses him, and hugs him. And then the grandfather looks in the sky and says, he had a hat. <laughs> That's called Jewish humor. That's Hebrew humor. That's Judeo-Christian tradition, isn't it? It always comes with a touch of hyperbole. Now, preachers never use, use hyperbole today, but they used it a lot back then. And you see it in Jesus. I don't know why it is that there are a lot of churches, there are a lot of preachers, there are a lot of pulpits today where Jesus is being portrayed 
(laughs) as a stick in the mud, as some somber, melancholy, gloom and doom rabbi. And to be sure, Jesus knew how to cry. He knew how to lament. And we, we all know John 11:35, right? And Jesus wept. Jesus had his tears. In fact, I remember the night. It was a Thursday night, the night before Good Friday, that he looked over the holy city and he just wept. He cried about his people, Jerusalem. But Jesus also knew joy. In fact, you remember how the Pharisees, the religious professionals, you remember how they criticized Jesus? They said he's too happy, essentially. They said he's too cheerful. He's too joyful. They, They said he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And whenever I read that, I think, you know, we, we religious types sometimes can be so temperamental. They were, the Pharisees were. They criticized John the Baptist for being too austere, too strict. And they said Jesus was too happy. And Jesus responded by saying this. This is kind of humorous. My friend John wailed, but you all didn't mourn. I played the flute, and you wouldn't dance. In other words, what do you want? <laughs> you can strain a gnat and swallow a camel. We had the disciples in stitches with stuff like that. You can take the speck out of somebody else's eye while you've got a log in your own. Once to a rich man, he said it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle <laughs> than for an affluent person to get in the kingdom of God. One time, John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, came to Jesus with an interesting question. How come we and the Pharisees are always fasting, but you people, your disciples, never do? And Jesus said, hey, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? That means joy. What was the first miracle that Jesus ever performed? It was at a wedding feast where he turned the water into wine. And wine is the Hebrew sign for joy. It didn't happen at a wake. It happened at a wedding. When Jesus was born on that night, Luke 2 says, there was an angel that appeared to shepherds and said, I've got really good news of great, what, joy. It's for everybody. In fact, I remember his first sermon, Sermon on the Mount, signature sermon, that he looked at that crowd, many of them were hurting, and he said, blessed are you who weep now because one day you're going to be laughing. And I'm so glad he said that. Jesus knows joy. Teilhard de Chardin, the French Jesuit priest of the 20th century, said the infallible proof of the presence of Christ is joy. I think you could say the opposite. The infallible proof of the absence of Christ is a lack of joy. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Number two, love, joy, peace, patience. It's medicinal. It's therapeutic. 
Norman Cousins, do you know that name? Helped us to understand this. A journalist, a political activist who received the Schweitzer Humanitarian Prize in 1990. He was diagnosed in 1964 with a rare disease that was about his connective tissue, ankylosing spondylitis. I can barely pronounce it. And the doctors said, you have one in 500 chance to live, and so you need to get your affairs in order. They gave him several months. So he did four things. Number one, he fired his doctor. Number two, he started an exercise regimen. Number three, he started taking massive doses of vitamin C. Number four, he bought a movie projector. And every day, he would watch these funny videos like Marx Brothers, Three Stooges, Candid Camera, cartoons, and he discovered that 10 minutes of belly laughing could produce two hours of pain-free sleep. And lo and behold, if he didn't start feeling a little better, and he lived 26 more years. He wrote a book called The Anatomy of an Illness. He was hired by the UCLA School of Medicine, and his research helped to uncover the benefits of endorphins, these natural pain blockers that are released by joy. His story actually affirms what a wise king 3,000 years before said, that a cheerful heart can change your life, that a cheerful spirit can promote health and wholeness, that there is a correlation to what's in here and what's out here. There's a connection between wisdom and joy. Now, be careful with this. This is not a panacea for all kinds of sickness. This is not going to hire leuke- this is not going to heal leukemia necessarily, but it's not a denial of reality. It's not a Pollyanna prescription against trouble. When you think about it, the truth is not a one of us is going to get out of this thing alive, but it makes a difference whether you look at the glass as half full or half empty. Joy is a choice. Joy is a gift. And this was a trait that the Hebrew teachers absolutely treasured. Don't tell me they weren't realistic. If anybody was realistic about the pain of life, it is our friends, the Jews. But they also knew the difference that joy can make. It's not something that happens to you. It's something that happens in you. I'll tell you where I saw it. I saw it in a preschool halfway across the globe. I saw it in a place called Angel Care in South Africa where many of you have given gifts to support children whose lives are being changed. I remember going to Timbalitli to that school. It was 30 minutes before school started and the children were already there. I don't suppose they needed an alarm clock or a stiff arm in the back. They were there 30 minutes early 
and they couldn't wait. They were dressed and ready, singing praises and sharing the joy of Christ in a place of love and instruction and they're getting an education and they're growing in wisdom and their joy is a mark of wisdom. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing partnership. The difference between joy and despair does not simply depend on our circumstances. It depends on our spiritual resources. That's what it's about. It's medicinal. A joyful heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit, it'll crush the bones. Now here's the best news of all. If you are one of those folks who's come in today on four flat tires, if you are one who is broken in spirit, if you're suffering today from a broken heart, I'm so glad to tell you, you're in the right place at the right time because there's a doctor in the house. There's a physician who specializes in broken spirits. We have a spiritual cardiologist who is among us who repairs broken hearts. And his name is Jesus. He himself said, those who are well, you don't need a doctor, but I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. I've come to save the broken in spirit. I'm thinking of Bill Fleet. We did his funeral a couple of years ago. He was a pediatrician for over 50 years. Carolyn's still here with us. I remember at his funeral, his daughter, who is an adult now, stood before us and said, Dad was one of those guys who could just fix anything. And so while he was working, we would wait after school until 6, 6.30. Dinner was coming. Dad would come in, and I would be there with some kind of broken toy. Daddy, can you fix it? And Bill would he'd always say the same thing. He'd say, honey, I can fix it. In fact, I can make it better than before it was broken. There's a doctor in the house. The first sermon he ever preached in his hometown synagogue started with this word from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoner, to comfort all who grieve, and listen to this, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and to put a song of joy in place of sorrow. There's a doctor in the house. You all remember Ed Wynn? I'm almost through. You remember the name Ed Wynn? He was best known for his part that he played in a film called Mary Poppins in 1964. Uncle Albert was his name. He sang a song in that film called I Love to Laugh. You remember that? It's one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen. Ed Wynn died of cancer, lung cancer, two years after that film came out. He died in 1966. He was interred in a mausoleum in, at Forest Lawn in Glendale beneath a marker 
that he had instructed these words to be written, Dear God, thanks, Edwin. That's it. I think the reason that you can live and I can face life with joy and courage is because we serve a risen Savior who in spite of his suffering, in spite of his scars, in spite of the cross, in spite of Good Friday, on the third day, he had the last laugh. And when his friends saw him, they were overjoyed. Maybe that's why his brother, Jesus' brother James, wrote in that little epistle, chapter 1, verse 5, consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, though for a little while you're going to suffer various trials, although you've not seen him, you love him, and though you don't see him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with an indescribable joy because you are receiving the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. Listen, weeping may remain for the night, but joy comes in the morning. In a world that is trying to dumb us down, the way to wise up comes through the path of joy. Nehemiah was right. The joy of the Lord is my strength. May it be so for you, through you, to the world. Amen.